When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bookaloo. My name is Anthony. This week features Martin's co-author Elio Garcia. Elio and I talk slash argue over a number of topics, but somewhere in there we cover Arya's overhearing of Varys and Ilario's conversation. Elio has a fascinating theory of his own about what that scene was originally meant and how we have to read it differently now that Martin has extended the plot. Steve and I talk slash argue over my least favorite episode, yes, least favorite episode of the entire HBO adaptation, and I'm including any episodes of season seven and eight. And for my bird's eye view, I include a short conversation that I had with a fan from Belgium. So without further ado, here is Elio M. Garcia Jr. So Elio, I'm really interested to hear your take on this chapter. It absolutely is the kind of chapter that you experience differently on a reread. I absolutely agree with you. It's it's one certainly, and especially a reread when you read, if you've read the other books of the series, that like you haven't just like. I mean, there was a time when this the book I reread after reading Game of Thrones was a Game of Thrones, so it wasn't anything else available. Yeah. Uh, but once you get further on, <laughs> right. once you go further on in the series. Mm-hmm. Uh, you start putting together pieces and you realize uh, that this was a very portentous and very kind of important particular episode towards a greater story of the Osama Empire, of what's going on behind the scenes that isn't immediately evident. Let me just do a quick synopsis of the chapter and then we can kind of fill in the details. Arya is chasing cats again. She has designs on an especially cunning Tom when she is confronted by Marcella and Tom and Lannister. They confuse her for a low-born boy, and a Lannister guard tries to grab her, but Arya is too fast and pushes Tom into the floor before escaping out a narrow window. She runs through the mazes of the Red Keep until she finds herself in a dark cavern filled with monstrous skulls. Arya steals her courage and runs toward a door to discover a large cistern with a spiraling staircase. She overhears a conversation between two mysterious men. After overhearing several details she can't quite discern, she hides, follows them, and listens a bit more. Finally, she follows a tunnel out of the castle grounds and makes her way back to her father's room. Ned scolds her and refuses to listen to her story. They are interrupted by Yorin, who has news for Ned. Arya leaves wondering if her father's life is in danger. You want to talk about a character, a theme, a plot point, or shall you and I just climb the ladder of chaos? I suppose in a way it's the ladder of chaos because it is it is the chaos of creativity and mm. uh, creation. Um, we start getting the story from George of how A Song of Fire came to be. You know, everyone knows the story of how he, the first thing he had was 
finding a, a dead dire wolf yeah. in, the, in the summer snow, right? Mm-hmm. And that launched him to writing a few chapters, but he was still working in Hollywood. And then he decided to write this trilogy. So he was writing a trilogy. Just to clue people in who don't know this story. So originally, A Song of Ice and Fire was meant to be a trilogy. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. And then he thought... Maybe it's maybe it's not three books. Maybe it's four books, right? Yeah, and then and then you know he launched into the second book, uh, Clash of Kings, and very soon in that process he realized, well, no, I'm wrong. This is more than four books as well. And he stopped everything. He said he stopped all his work, and he started uh, outlining and 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 sort of structuring and thinking of it about exactly how he was going to get. So he said it's six books. Now he stuck to six books for a very long time. It's now seven. Maybe it'll be more. I don't know. I can't say anything. <laughs> I won't say anything about that. But he, but basically, around the time of the second book, he said, okay, it's no longer a trilogy. It's no longer four books. It's six books. And he's created a pretty broad plan that he's trying to stick to as best he can. So A Game of Thrones is a book that was born out of that initial trilogy. And at the end of it, he thought, ah, it's running a little long. I'll cut off some of it, and I'll put it at the start of the, the, the next book. But... What always struck me about this particular bit is how was George going to make the whole story move that quickly? What did he think was going on? Mm. What is it are the things that he added when he said, okay, it's six books. I need to add. I mean, I know I have like the main story threads that I wanted to do. They're going to take longer than I thought. So I have to fill in gaps. I have to create additional plots to kind of fill in the story. And around the year about 1999 2000 we're communicating with george regularly on our website because we're doing uh heraldry we're doing you know we're answering questions we're kind of pointing out mistakes and he's sometimes like you know he's using us for to help him like remember details right. that he had written earlier yeah. and all that stuff and he said you know i i just got around to completing the targaryen family tree because when he started a Game of Thrones, he like he had started writing, and then he said, "I'll create the the list of kings, and I'll drop down a little details." But he didn't have a, a whole family tree, right? And, and it's a, after, it's something yeah. of a tangled family tree. <laughs> extremely, it's it's an extremely <laughs> incestuous. Um, the Julio Claudians have nothing on them, um, and. And another thing that kind of developed out of that, and it has to do with the Hedge Knight, which is a, a novella written in the, which is a, a prequel kind of to As Always in Fire, is he creates a whole Blackfire thing, right? Right. The Blackfires. The Blackfires did not exist prior to sometime around the end of Clash of Kings and the start of the uh, Rising so, so one of the things that made him think this is bigger than I thought was the sort of the Blackfire pretenders that we yeah. meet that we meet toward the end of dance. I I guess we meet throughout dance, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh well at least well, at least we believe there, you know, there there is the possibility that maybe we're not. But you know, I, yeah. I fall on the side that I fall on the side that George is is, is drawing, you know, I saw as a fire started a little bit as a, a kind of a Wars of the Roses made into a fantasy. Sure, sure. And sure. if you know the history of the Wars of the Roses, you did have pretenders show up mm-hmm. pretending to be uh one of the princes in the tower uh and so on so i i think george said okay great i'll draw from that i'll have a pretender prince and that'll be part of the story mm. so this pretender prince when we discover you know when Tyrion uh meets illyrio and he learns about 
he's going to go meet Griff, and then he meets his young Griff, who is apparently Prince Aegon, the son of Rhaegar. Yeah. Um, and all these details around him. And I said, okay, well, wait a second. George didn't invent any of that when he was writing Game of Thrones. He had no idea about it. There's no way Arya could have overheard any of those details in this conversation because those details have not been invented yet, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, but then the question is, is what is this? What are they doing? I think Boris and Illyrio's role in the initial trilogy and, and what Arya overhears is perhaps very different from what they, George, the gardener, yeah, ended up developing out of them. Sure. So to me, like this, this is this is like one of the most intriguing pieces of the puzzle about what the story would have been to begin with. Hmm. Um, and I have, you know, I, I I have this notion personally, and this is again, I I, I want to clarify because we, I've never discussed this with George. I don't have any insight mm. beyond the things that he has told everybody so this is already. an elio garcia independent thought <laughs> absolutely independent. Okay. all right um my belief is that george's initial idea was that varus and Illyrio were going to tie into the others and the white walker that they were wittingly or unwittingly puppets of who's ever attacking from beyond the wall. Oh my goodness. That they were destabilizing the realm just in time for the White Walkers to be ready to make their attack. That's so interesting. That's my idea. And, and I have some elements that I think may tie into it. Akasha Kings, as I mentioned, George was starting to write it and then he kind of paused to flesh out his six book sure. arc of it. Or, okay. And we have in, this, in Akasha Kings, we have. Tyrion talking to Varus, and Varus talking about the occasion in which he was mm. gelded and turned to a eunuch. And that uh, a sorcerer in the Three Cities did it, threw his member into the fire, and the fire turned to blue flame, and this strange, frightening voice came out of it. He doesn't know what happened. Um, I think this is a remnant of what George was going with, but that somehow Varus had had sorcerous contact as a child, Perhaps even been affected by this sorcerer contacting the others. That's my idea. So it's an interesting. All right. So let's let's talk about some of the the little details here that would support this particular yeah. suggestion. So we are assuming, and I think we assume correctly, that Arya overhears Varys and Alario talking. Oh yeah, that's absolutely. I think the yeah. the best evidence, other than Illyrio, um, I mean the description of the. This very fat figure wearing wings. You know, a a forked yellow beard. He's got the Free Cities accent. I believe there's also a mention of his walking, uh, which is a detail that I think Tyrion... Uh, Yeah, yeah, he walks on the balls of his feet. Because he used to be a water dancer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Excellent. All right. And, And of course, Varys, I mean... He talks about little birds, and uh, he seems to know everyone's business, and we know he he loves disguises. And interesting that he's called a sorcerer, whether that's tongue-in-cheek or not. Yeah. So I think that we're pretty on safe ground with that. Absolutely. But then the second thing to note here is that timing seems especially important to these two. 
Varus basically says, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing. I always say Varus. I hear you saying Varus, and I'm thinking, well, normally I wouldn't think twice, but now I'm talking to Elio Garcia. <laughs> Should we maybe well, uh, uh, that, that's a funny this? one. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, to be honest, um, we were saying we were reading these books before we ever contacted George, uh-huh. and then when we contacted George, it was all email. email so uh-huh. we never we developed all our pronunciations long yeah. before. We talked to George, and so even now, people are telling us, "Why do you keep calling him uh, Stannis, not Stannis, or, or or whatever it is?" And it's like, well, this is how we've always said it. And at the time, George uh, said, "You know, say it however you want. There's no pronunciation guide for a reason. Uh-huh. Just say whatever's comfortable." So uh-huh. that's funny. I teach I teach uh, um, ancient languages, and so I I tell my students just pronounce it however you want to pronounce it. These are ancient languages. We we have guesses about how they are pronounced, but. Oh. Um, anyway, so Vera says something along the lines of, I can forestall this a little bit, maybe, but I'm not I, I'm not going to be able to hold back the, the tide. The lion and the wolf are going to be right at each other's throat, like, pretty soon. You know, it could be it could be a couple days, it could be a week, but Ned's absolutely going to find out the truth, and that's going to start a war. And Ilario is basically saying, you got to delay. You've got to delay. We're not ready for war yet. All right. So that that much, I think, we can sort of chalk right. up to fact that these two are, they absolutely want to use a war to their benefit. Right. But the question about that is the timing. There's there's The timing of the war is crucial. Exactly. All right. So then building from that, of course, we have to ask the question, why? Why do these two think that the timing of a civil war will benefit them? And I think that maybe as the story progresses, it benefits them because there's this Blackfire intrigue that they have to put in place because they want to put a, you know, a a hidden Targaryen on the throne, something like that. Right. Um, But you're suggesting that 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 could not be the case because George has not invented that yet. Yeah, that's exactly my view. I don't think that uh, I I am certain. I mean, for example, if you read The Hedge Knight, uh, there's not a whisper, there's not a hint that the Blackfire has ever existed. It's not until the second story after George has already Uh, fleshed all the details out where the black fires are mentioned a storm of swords is the first reference to it when he said he finished a family tree i mean he sent us that family tree back mm-hmm. then and we saw this black fire thing and we saw agor rivers bitter steel for yeah. the first time oh for that matter we saw Bended rivers uh for the first time in that tree so i george did not have them in mind uh until he didn't quite brendan rivers is a whole other thing about the shape of the story of course because right. if he didn't exist uh, actually, I talked to George about this particular point. Like, you know, I knew that he hadn't created the family tree, and yet Brendan Rivers is going to have this big role in the sort of the magical side of the story. And I asked him, like, you didn't have him. Like, did you, or did you, did you have him and you just didn't figure out how he worked? He said, well, and he actually answered and said, you know, I, I knew it would be someone like him. I didn't really know any of the details. Uh, someone like him that would exist who would be connected to the Free Eyed Crow. Right. Uh, beyond the wall so yeah it to me it's it's if that's not it what's happening the timing is matters because it's clear what they're planning to use i think um viserys and daenerys as uh an initial 
wedge into this conflict, right. into what they want to do. But I think the whole point is to do something. Uh, Illyrio, to be honest, my view of this is like when I read Illyrio and I consider how Illyrio is, he is, uh, he may not be in the same position as Varus. I, I could see them like him believing that Varus and he are tight and they know exactly what each other is planning. And in fact, Varus is using Illyrio because of whatever's going on um, magically or whatever. Uh, but certainly we see this early on in the first Danny chapter, I believe, or maybe the second uh, in A Game of Thrones, where she thinks about, I think the first one, where Illyrio kind of calms Viserys down, tells her how everyone's waiting to hail him as a king. And, and she says, you know, she can see his slice, Miles. He, he didn't respect Viserys. He was just using Viserys for his own purposes. Hmm. Um, I so I think all of that is is correct to, and George continued to use that even as the story ended up shaping differently, and Boris and Illyrio ended up having what I think was a different role. They're still having a role where you're still trying to destabilize the realm, but now it's um, uh, my view is 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 Boris is putting into practice the idea that you can. What matters is you know in the in the nature versus nurture. It's like hundred percent nurture in his view. You can make a king. You can train someone to be a king. Right. And and if you train them, if you raise them from infancy, saying you are Prince Aegon, who's to say they aren't actually Prince Aegon? Right. right. It's right. all. Sure. So um, it, it's really interesting because it's such a big change. And I, I one of the most fascinating things is, is when it goes further is uh, I don't know there was I think it was uh, with Conan O'Brien. Did you see that there was a the Game of Thrones show did like a post Game of Thrones thing with Conan? I haven't. I seen think. that, No. And they had Conliffe Hill. As one of the people, he had all the cast, and Conliffe Hill shared something that George told him about Boris. Oh, I've seen this. Yeah, he's he's ultimately like he has good intentions or something like that. Yeah, which is a very interesting. I mean, I, you know, I must have gold and another fifty birds. Right. <laughs> that line kind of runs through your head, like you know. The, this is obviously someone who, I, I guess, in George's view, he is someone who is the ends justify the means, perhaps. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there's a lot of, uh, I think a lot of people may have arguments about whether morally Boris can be actually fundamentally good when you consider what the birds are and, and what's being done to... to yeah, and he wants them, like, he keeps on, he says, I want them especially young. Right. Exactly. There's something like, look, I need to train these the, sort of the spy network from the time that they're tiny creatures, which, you know, you think about his own childhood and how, how, oh. how young he was when he was used by the evil men of his his own society. I think that Varus is someone something like sort of the ends justify the means when it comes to these things. He, yeah, he says, "What I what I can do, I will." The one with the torch said softly, "I must have gold and another fifty birds." So, in other words, Alario is funding whatever whatever Varys is doing. Alario is funding, and he's also providing him with children to the tune of fifty at a time. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's kind of disgusting when you think about it. So, uh, all right, yeah, that's, gosh, it's interesting to me that 
he's he's looking at the chessboard and he's not really putting any pieces in place yet, but it, the chessboard has to look just right before he decides to enter the game. Yeah, that's uh, I, and it's really interesting when you think about one of the things that um, many people assumed with you know uh, there's an earlier bit of dialogue you know if one hand can die why not a second yes you have danced the dance before my friend uh, a lot of people did obviously read this initially in for Game of Thrones is oh well they must be the ones behind the death of John Arryn obviously this is intentional from George leaving it a mystery giving you different. There's two kind of primary, well, there's three, I guess, technically, sort of views you can have on it, which is like there's Morris and Lirio, and they're talking about it, kind of, mm-hmm. but a hand has died, and you've danced this dance before. Yeah, suggesting that Varys had something to do, or maybe he was the person behind the death of John yeah. Arryn, right? Yeah, and then there's a, and there's the. You know, Cersei did it, which is the obvious one with the the Starks kind of focus on. It seems mm-hmm. obvious to them that the Lannister, and they just don't understand why, and they end up, you know, Ned ends up discovering why it happened. He thinks, mm-hmm. and then we are later told in the Storm of Swords uh, a, a different narrative, which is uh, very different. Basically, it, it makes it all it makes it all seem um, more of a tragic. Um, not an accident, but uh, since it was a poisoning, but it was uh, someone. There's someone else who's actually moving chess pieces around. Yeah. Well, okay. So John Arryn. I mean, we have at least three different motives. One is, yeah. the, you know, Cersei has a motive to keep her secret so that her son remains a legitimate Baratheon on the throne. You've got Varys because if we know that John Arryn was against trying to assassinate Danny. Mm. And so then the question is, is that, does that stand behind it? Does Varys have a motive here to destabilize and control Robert and therefore get, get, a, get John Arryn out of the way? And then, of course, what we find out later is that, that Lysa Arryn wants her husband dead because she wants to be with her love Littlefinger and Littlefinger wants to sow chaos. And so those two are behind it. Yeah. So, I mean, I've I've kind of been working from the assumption that Lysa is beyond it, and that is why sort of Martin drops this little hint that they're called the Tears of Lice, sort of as a literary, uh, just a just a little yeah. literary breadcrumb. Not not that not that in, the in world Tears of Lice were named after Lysa or vice no, no. versa, but that yeah. sometimes Martin likes to drop these little breadcrumbs. That don't mean anything at the time, but then you go back and you you like, oh, I see, he's got something in mind here. Well, I mean, in in a similar vein, I mean, we go to the, uh, we go to the Vale of Ar and Catelyn's chapter, and what do we see there? Alyssa's tears, the yeah. waterfall. Uh huh. So that could be another. Yeah, it's, it's interesting <laughs> that George is playing. I mean, and, and you know, it's it's absolutely true, but George will play around with certain sounds and names. Reusing them, if you've read his other works and says, you know, his Thousand Worlds, there's a there's a Joffrey there's a Jeffrey Lion, which you can kind of see a, a Joffrey and a Lannister kind of thing going. Uh, he does reuse certain. I mean, there's uh, a song for Lya, which has a Rob and a a, a Lya, which is obviously and he's got Rob Stark, Lyanna. No, oh, George, yeah. so George, George does reuse things. So I mean, the, the idea that it might amuse him, it might work to his sort of arthurial creative mind to kind of 
sow seeds and 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 the language he uses is 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 not not far off. I think I think there's there's a point to be made there. I certainly I mean it's absolutely the case that Alyssa did it because of Littlefinger. I mean Littlefinger definitely had a big role in suggesting it and helping her do it. Mm-hmm. I don't see where else he she would have gotten that poison uh, since the maester seemed entirely unaware it was going on. So. To me, I mean, it's it's such a perfect mystery that George did with the death of John Oren because he does such a good job of, of laying out different possibilities and leaving it, seeding so many little hints along the way. Yeah. So when he gets you at the end and you realize it's not, for many people, didn't quite, but they, they go, oh, of course, because he revealed that there were things with Lissa's story that didn't make sense. And now they do as soon as you retrospectively uh, look at it. So Varus... But I mean, going back to Boris Illyrio, I mean, at this stage, when you think, oh, yeah, they must have had a role in it, but it's directly contradictory to what they're saying right now. But they don't want a war happening right now. Mm. They want to delay it. And why is the war happening? Uh, I believe Boris says, you know, you know, the hand has the book and it's only a matter of time. Yeah, he's got the book of the bastard and it could be a day, it could be two days, but it could be a fortnight. But it's absolutely he Ned's absolutely going to find out the truth at some point and it'll probably be soon. I have a question for you and it's a question that I get asked by lots of people and I never have a good answer for it. But maybe you will because you ask George these kinds of questions. So this is more of a question about how much of a gardener is <laughs> uh-huh. how much how much of a gardener are we actually dealing with here? So Here's the question that I get asked. All right, so George has seen how the show's story arcs concluded and how that was received. How much will that, let, let's just call that like the world's largest focus group. <laughs> All right, so the yeah. world's largest focus group has been tested. But I guess the question is this after the world's largest focus group has sort of given the verdict that. This is how we've received season, you know, the outcome of the Song of Ice and Fire. Is George the type of gardener who will think, hmm, well, maybe I'll go a different direction. Uh, I'll I'll take a different course of action here to see where that goes. Or is he the kind of gardener that's kind of stubborn that says, nope, that's my outline. My story only works this way. I'm going to continue going, and I'm going to tell the story in a way that's satisfying to me. So, do you have any insights into that at all? Like, do you think that George will change the ending based on this giant focus group uh, that happened at the end of season eight? No, no. Um, but I, I, George has said all along, he's kind of, he has the end in mind. He's always had the end in mind. Um, from, you know, from, from the time it was originally a trilogy, I guess he had a sense, certainly by the time he did that fuller outline for the six books, he, he knew kind of the main, the major beats hmm. for some of these characters. What I will say, I think, is, is that think about how often he talked about the show needing more time you know 10 10 seasons 12 seasons would have been good for him it wasn't just trying to buy time for writing his book it was also because they were cutting down out things which were in his mind integral to 
how the ending happens. Yeah. Okay. And a big complaint of, of a lot of people like, who, you know, and, and you know, I stopped watching after season five. Uh, I just know, I, I know, I know what happened because I, I live on the internet, <laughs> but um, the, the main re- complaints I saw is that uh, some of the developments in that final set of episodes were felt so rushed and sudden, like it came out of, and they are saying, oh, it didn't come out of nowhere. We had pins here and there, but I think what people reacted to is they didn't feel like there was a core of emotional truth mm. to, in particular, uh, what happened with Daenerys. They didn't feel that where she went fits the arc of her character up to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, George has, I think, laid the seeds for it in a way that are, I mean, even in, in uh, Dance of Dragons, um her final chapter uh where she thinks about how her mistake was trying to to make peace and trying to be peaceable she's a dragon dragons are for war uh that's a really interesting it's a really because to me it's like it's very foreboding as well because you're starting to see it shaping in her head that she's not there to be a peaceful queen she's a a queen for war and a queen for fire and blood Mm -hmm. And that will have, uh, I think George's intention is that the next books, book six, book seven, if there needs to be a book eight, book eight will start giving you chapters in her head, showing that develop more and more and progress to where she's at a point where you could perhaps see what happens at the end of the TV show happening to her in a way that feels much more earned. Mm. Don't let me put words in your mouth, but what I'm hearing is that George has outcomes in mind, and we can probably take it to the bank that he's not going to change anyone's outcome. It's just that the the way that George will get these characters to their ultimate outcome will be in a way that's satisfying to George, and and we'll have to wait and see if it's satisfying to the fans. I think that's fair enough. Yeah. 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 Okay. I I've you know, Elio, I. You know, season six is one of my favorite seasons of the show. I don't mm-hmm. know if if you <laughs> I don't know if you've ever if you would ever consider revisiting the HBO adaptation. I have heard heard that season six was uh, was an improvement over season five, uh, but then then I yeah. hear about season seven and eight were uh, for many people were for just... many for many people absolutely. I mean, but let's also keep in mind that the numbers only ever increased. <laughs> The numbers for watchers, I mean, there was a lot of vocal people on the internet, but the numbers only ever got bigger. So they were doing something that, and I will say that this, even though season eight was largely panned, there were moments in season eight that were just gorgeous. And I thought, for me, I can kind of view those final seasons as an iteration in the way that maybe like a fan fiction could be like, an iteration of the outcome of a story. I enjoyed them for what they are. It doesn't necessarily ruin the story arcs that came before. But I I was always just in it for the fun anyway. Yeah. So. No, I um I, I think what to me what really started becoming more obvious as a show at all. I mean I I became the second season was the first kind of inkling that hmm, maybe this isn't gonna be as as going in the way that I want but I mean I was happy with second and third and but I think a lot of it is adaptation is is a conversation I guess between those adapting and the creator 
Uh, and, and it's what the adapters take out of it and what they choose to focalize that becomes what we receive as viewers of her work, of her creation. And I felt as time went on that David and Dan, and this may be, this may possibly be the, the influence of just the nature of making film and television in Hollywood. Mm. And, and they were very spectacle focused. Yes. I every, think you're right. Every, I think I can totally buy that there were some really amazing moments, but I think that that's because David and Dan were focused on moments. There was a critic, I think it's Miles McNutt, uh, who talked about this. I mean, or maybe maybe it was uh, Emily Vanderwerf. I don't know. Some critics talked about it, but they felt that what they what they felt, and I felt that this is what led me to stop kind of watching, is that they were so focused on hitting these spectacular moments. I mean, I mean, there's um, just I know there's a famous image from the final episode of Daenerys coming down the steps. And Drogon's wings coming out, and yeah. he looks like like his wing demon. Uh, and they talked. Everyone talked about the beauty, the composition, and how amazing. And and to me, it's like it's a great image, but it's it's like it's like taking a hammer and just whacking you over the head with with what they're trying to say. Because uh-huh. you can see that they love that image, but they love the image so much that it didn't matter to them whether they were just thumping you on the head uh-huh. or if they were trying to be subtle. And I feel like to me, that's what made me disenchanted towards the end. And I think that's what makes it different. Like, I mean, if you look at Peace for Crows, the reception for Peace for Crows uh, among critics at the time, I think that was really positive. I mean, he, George got his time magazine was talking to him as America's Tolkien on the strength of a piece for crows, because to me, as interestingly enough, piece of crows, despite how difficult its genesis Burke was, uh, in some ways, it's the most sort of most literary of the novels. Yeah, because it is so the theme of the piece for crows of of the the the, the spiraling down, the destruction, the corruption, the the falling apart of society yeah. runs through everything. Everything has it uh, from the the melancholy. Of the the captain of the guards opening chapter where Prince Doran is sitting there and these you can practically smell the blood oranges falling to the ground and 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 he's waiting for something he's waiting for word but his brother has been killed uh, all the way through to Jamie at the end burning his sister's letter uh, he doesn't want to help her yeah all of those things had such a, a cohesion to them. And they weren't about moments. They weren't about shocking you with the next big spectacle. It was a, a much more character-focused approach. I, yeah, I think that's a big I, difference. I hear what you're saying, and I, I think I, for the most part I do agree. I think the, the question is whether or not you're still emotionally connected to the story. Like, for me, that moment when Danny walks down the stairs and you see Drogon's wings behind her... It worked for me. Oh, man, it worked for me because I'm still emotionally connected where I think a, a lot of fans were like they were pretty pissed that, that the way that Danny's character went. I From the very beginning, I thought with Danny, when she sees a problem in the world and she wants to fix it, her her method for trying to fix that problem is to grasp for more power. So that she can control the, the the bad guys, and I always think, well, that's a very Targaryen move. You know, you see mm. a problem in the world, and now you're going to grasp for more power so that you can throw back the bad. 
that's the kind of move that someone like Miri Mazdor is going to absolutely critique. So I don't know. I always thought with Danny that that was sort of she was going to become something of a tyrant from the beginning. Oh, absolutely. So I I think that a lot of fans didn't like that about her. She they wanted Danny to in the end be a benevolent dictator, and I I didn't think that that was going to be an option for her. No. I agree with you on that point. I, I, I definitely think a lot of people didn't have a a real sense of where the story is going. As I said, I mean, that Dance of Dragons chapter at the end, that's George. That's about as clear as George can get without hitting you over the head with it, that she started yeah. thinking that direction. But that's that doesn't work for her to try sure. to do things. So uh, to me, I think for those fans who did get that, who are who were still unhappy with it, it's, it's just the sense that it was rushed. I think, but it yeah. didn't feel like they did. I mean, even to the point where they were proud of the fact. I mean, there was, I think there was interviews talking about the fact, like you know, Emilio saying, "I don't understand. I didn't understand certain scenes and how they wanted me to play her, and I was trying to ask for information, and they wouldn't. They just said, play it as we wrote it.' And basically, they were trying to say, "Oh, well, let's have her. Let's convey that she has this dragon-like ferocity in her and this tyranny inside her heart." But let's not tell our actress that. Let's just tell her just mm. to play. And, I mean, that they made. I think some of the stuff that I think are just mistakes that new producers make. Some of it I think are signs that they maybe didn't think through their relationship right. with their actors and how what actors are. they aren't actors themselves. They're writers. They don't, mm. you know. So for writers, characters do what they want them to do, and that's it. There's no there's no arguing. If your character doesn't argue with you. Well, sometimes they do. Some some writers talk about characters that way, but they don't argue with them, and they'll have to just kind of listen to them. But um, that's that's all just that's just a very writerly uh, exercise. Yeah. Um, but I I think there's aspects of where like like I kind of wonder if, if someone else had been running the show, could it have gone differently, or if someone who just wanted to continue running the show for a few more seasons was handling it. Yeah. Could if they a few had passed more seasons... it off to someone else, I I feel like yeah, I feel like. I honestly do feel like if there was a fan who was really great at editing and came in and just used the the material that the showrunners have provided with season season six through eight, I think that you could probably in the editing room come up with a pretty decent conclusion to that story. Um, not one that George would have envisioned. <laughs> no, no, no. It, but it would one have to that, be a different, that yeah. one that just has the the character beats just evolve in a, a little differently. You know, I think one more episode in season eight really might have done it for me with Daenerys. Yeah, yeah, that's how I feel. But maybe I'm in the minority here. I loved. There's so much about those seasons that I loved that hmm. I was willing to forgive the sort of unforced errors that they brought to it. Yeah. No, I can I can, I can certainly see the point. I mean I, I certainly didn't feel that I mean I think people can't just ignore the fact that it was the most, you know, watched and talked about show yeah. on the planet at a certain right. point. Like it, it it is what it is. It they struck a chord. Mm -hmm. They were able to hold on to people. But sometimes things can strike a chord that perhaps have their flaws. Uh I mean even even a song of the fire has it has its flaws, even though it strikes a chord with people. Um, as someone who had didn't watch it, I I, I have a sense of why those who disliked it disliked it. I know why critics were panned, but at the same time, I can definitely see why people enjoyed it. Even people who recognize that it was flawed. 
Let me just, in a short time we have remaining, I want to revisit the chapter. Oh, yes. So I'm going to read this little passage here, and I want to sort of throw my immediate reaction at you and see what you say. This is Arya is um, hiding in the dark. She hunkered down in the dark against a damp stone wall and listened for the pursuit. But the only sound was the beating of her own heart and the distant drip of water. Quiet as a shadow, she told herself. She wondered where she was. When she had first come to King's Landing, she used to have dreams about getting lost in the castle. So now she's going to recount her dreams. Father said the Red Keep was smaller than Winterfell, but in her dreams it had been immense, an endless stone maze with walls that seemed to shift and change behind her. She would find herself wandering down gloomy halls past faded tapestries, descending endless circular stairs, darting through courtyards or over bridges, her shouts echoing unanswered. In some of the rooms, the red stone walls would seem to drip blood, and nowhere could she find a window. Sometimes she would hear her father's voice, but always from a long way off, and no matter how hard she ran after it, would grow fainter and fainter, until it faded into nothing, and Arya was alone in the dark. Number one, as I read that, it's written a little bit like a horror uh, scene, a scene in like a horror novel. And then I think because Ned's voice features and then fades in that in that section, I wonder if George is foreshadowing Ned's ultimate death. What do you think about that? Uh, I mean, Ned's voice features somewhere else uh yeah she uh, she says well she's going through the castle and like some of the the rooms are like covered in blood so you're i mean it's certainly king's landing is a dangerous and ominous place a place of of mazes and and she's calling for her father's voice and she can hear her father's voice but it's always distant and she can never get an answer and then finally it fades into nothing Right. And I wonder if this is sort of George's way of foreshadowing Ned's death. I, I think so. I think absolutely. I mean, uh, in Bran's chapter, when uh, they hear of the death of Ned, I mean, yeah. they have to go down into the crypts. And Rickon is there because he had seen he had the his same father. dream. He had spoken. Yeah. He had dreamed that his father was coming. I think they spoke. Yeah, uh, Brandon didn't remember what they spoke about, but so the the voice of Ned, Ned's presence is so important to his children that, of course, the, the his doom, his is going. It seems to have some sort of psychic quality, some magical quality that leads them mm. to sort of. Uh, no, no, it's absolutely the horror thing. I mean, George is a master, I think, of the mood mm-hmm. that he sets it in his stories, and this, I mean, the whole this whole passage is, is I mean, it's a beautiful piece of writing, I think. And but and and George is able to use it to create hints to make you start thinking. Like even if you don't, you I mean you're reading in the moment. She's lost. You you're, you're kind of caught up. You're just gonna. You, most people just go on, read right past that, continue on to to what happens next. What's what's gonna happen to Arya? Yeah. Uh, but it's there in the back of your head somewhere. That that language is floating back there of his voice fading away, and you won't forget it. And when he dies, and then when you get that echo from Bran. Learning from Master Lewin, oh, they have to find a sculptor who ha- knows their father's likeness uh-huh. uh, because Rickon had that dream and, and they both had that dream. They spoke to him. No, absolutely. I think George does it. He does it with, 
There's so many characters are, are foreshadowed in their fates. Uh, Catelyn staring into Renly's armor in A Clash of Kings and seeing a drowned woman. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Huh. There's so many of those. So, no, absolutely. I think George, I mean, George absolutely knew, even if he was changing the story uh, as he went, that Ned was dead. Ned, that, yeah. this was a central feature of his first novel, which that he wanted to have a protagonist that you rooted for, but you were attached to, and then he was going to kill him. Because he was going to show that he wasn't playing games, that he was playing for keeps. Yeah. And yeah. Um, huh. I well, I love that passage. I, yeah, I think you're right. It is beautifully written, and it really does give you the sense that the Red Keep is this dangerous, haunted place. Hmm. Um, you also get the sense that in that chapter, Arya is in the room with all of the dragon skulls, and she says that she knows that they're dead. But there's something that is there. There's a presence there that does not love her. And you get the sense, okay, what am I am I should I how should I read this? Should I read this as well, dragons are magic and there are there's like a, some sort of dark magic down there where all those dragon schools are? Or is it just the way Arya's feeling? You could read it both ways, but in but it does the same thing. It really does it brings you to this idea that there's this King's Landing is something of a haunted place, and that's how we should look at it from a stark perspective. Dangerous, haunted place. I think that's a great observation because, I mean, a lot of the story is haunted by the the ghosts of a Targaryen's past, the yes. people in the past, yes. who, you know, the Mad King, Rhaegar, Rhaegar looms. Um, you know, it, it's it, Daenerys has her own vision of, in her dreams, of, of what King's Landing is like. Uh, and I actually wouldn't... Uh, I didn't think about this, but until you, we discuss it, but I mean, we talk about King's Landing as labyrinthine yeah. maze of, of things. I, I think also, of course, George kind of revisits a similar kind of feel in Clash of Kings with Daenerys when she's among the, the warlocks. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and there's, and I think there's even, I think she even hears voices distantly but trying to lead her away. And there's these, these passages, constant, endless passages. She keeps trying to find uh, her way through it. So I, that's definitely an image that George hmm. finds um, resident. Uh, there's a there's a story uh, from years back, one of his Thousand World stories called The Stone City, which I highly recommend. It's a great short science fiction story uh, about this enormous ancient uh, city uh, in which the main character ends up being uh, kind of running away from some trouble he's in, and he gets lost, and is this maze, and it's and you feel the that there's ghosts there, not literal, but in your you can imagine it, you mm -hmm. can feel like there's something eerie about it, and George is so good at just creating this sense of of eeriness and making it part of the thematics mm -hmm. of, of what's going on in the story. So uh, yeah. no, I think uh, the the Red Keep really captures that uh, in this passage because. George really wants to get you into sort of Arya's mindset, try to see it through her world and feel what she's feeling. And so the language, the choice of how he describes things kind of gives you that. Uh, as I said, I, I think he's really a master at sort of the atmosphere of things. It, it's one yeah. of the things like uh, it's my, fa my favorite, favorite chapters tend to be just really heavy with the atmosphere because George is just really capable of evoking right. these feelings. Whatever it's the, the pit of the stomach of, of when poor Quentin Martell is, is trying to work up the nerve to try and steal a dragon and you just feel like <laughs> it's going to go wrong. You, you can tell, you know it, you know it. He, he practically knows it, Yes, but uh, he's so good at it. He's so good at yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. 
So uh, one of the things that we do with this podcast is we talk about the show differences, um, and then and we talk about the any major introductions. In both cases, when Arya's downstairs, it really is a, the first introduction to you know the fi- the physical presence of dragons, even though it's just mm. skulls. Yeah. Um, you know, we've heard about dragons. We've you know Tyrion reads about dragons. Um, we've heard about the uses of dragon bone, and we've met Danny's eggs already and whatnot. But in this absolutely real, these are not creatures out of myth in George's world. Th- these are artifacts of dragons that are you know enormous, and their their teeth are like swords and whatnot. So introduction to you know actual dragons for the first time. Yeah. And then the show difference that I that that struck me the most was that Arya really does hide in one of these skulls to overhear the mm. conversation. The conversation's much shorter. There's less detail in the conversation right. for sure. The dragon skulls feature so prominently in the show that it's almost like you've <laughs> you've done a lot to make that room feel, you know, believable. Yeah. Why not just have the whole scene in that room? Right. right. So yeah, that's a really good choice because uh, the economy of things is is, is a lot that mattered right. for them uh, at certain times. When they make a set, it's not a one-off set. It's something you're going to use multiple times. And then when they made those, I mean, those skulls were featured. Uh, you know, they had various exhibitions, uh, but they did for oh, right? props and costumes. Yeah, and the and the dragon skulls were always kind of present as one of the big things to show off. Uh, the one difference there, it's kind of funny, but I, I've never understood why we didn't make the skulls. Black. Yeah, they're supposed to be black. Absolutely. Yeah, to be black. it's a weird thing. I've never asked them why they stuck to this sort of a bone color, but uh, I think it would have been interesting to see them all black, and it would have looked. I mean, we see we see that when we looked at sort of uh, you go to a museum and you look at uh, a reconstructed dinosaur skeleton or whatever, they tend to be these dark um, bones. I, I don't know. It was it's, it's one of those weird things. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, one other thing about this chapter, I think this is the first chapter in which Arya is mistaken to be a boy. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Tommen does it, and then the guard does it, and I, you know, Maisie Williams. Even Yorin does it toward the end. Yorin's yeah. like, you must be, is, you know, you mu- this must be your son, right? Yeah. He has which your is very look. important. <laughs> which is very important to, towards her last chapter in, 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 in the book as well. Uh, right. That was a great. I mean, reading reading a Game of Thrones of reading the end of her chapter uh, for the first time and not knowing, so waiting for Clash of Kings and not knowing what what happens uh-huh, next. Uh-huh. Uh, quite the quite the thing, um, as this menacing figure of a knife keeps calling her boy, uh-huh. boy, and like, oh my god! All right, man, I appreciate your time. Yeah, no, no, much appreciated. Uh, really great talking to you. All right. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. getting geared up for the 6th annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. 
Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints, except it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, <laughs> now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim, order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar, then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. And now Steve and I talk about episode three of season four. This is Breaker of Chains. This is when Sansa escapes with Dantos. Sam sends Gilly away. Dario is Danny's champion. And then you have this horrific scene between Jamie and Cersei in the Sept of Baylor. Here is comic Steve Osborne. Steve, this is my least favorite Game of Thrones episode. Wow. Okay. I have not watched the last season for a while. It's probably been over a year since I watched the last season. And there were a couple dogs in that season. So it's hard to say, but this is this has got to be my top three at least. Really? Yeah. Go on. Oh, well, I got all kinds of things to talk about. Let me rapid fire through the things I didn't like, and then we okay. can kind of get it out of the way. We begin with Joffrey's face. You're sure. Okay. Yeah, just when you thought just when you thought you were out of the woods. That's right. I thought we were done with Joffrey's yeah. face. No, that's true. Yeah, I think Heather's uh if I can quote her correctly, it was <laughs> The Sansa Escape seemed a little bit Disney to me. And I think it might have been the music, but it all seemed a little bit like I don't know, young adult fiction kind of I don't know. Uh, just kind of tiptoeing through the city and, you know, getting on a boat and all that business. They get in the boat, and then, like, all of a sudden it's foggy? It's like it's a clear day, and then, of course, you know, uh, Littlefinger shows up and brings a blanket of fog with him just because he's so mysterious or something. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, in the world of smoke babies and dragons, uh, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Fog is really the the hangup. Yeah, I, I get mean, it. I've spent a lot of my life around boats and ocean, and I know that a fog can come. You know, fog can roll in pretty quickly. Sure, under the right conditions. But I I don't know. I just I thought that was a resurrection. Little... No problem. Fog, <laughs> no problem. Come on, man. 
<laughs> no problem. In general, Danto sucks. I just think he totally he just as a character, as an actor. Well, you did. You don't need him very much. He does what he needs. He to do. did what he needed to do, but he he really sucks. And then <laughs> just that strong feeling towards Danto. I just don't like Dantos. And well, uh, so he, so you should like this episode because he's he dispatched fairly quick. Well, he gets it right in the face. I, right in the. face. Face. Right in the face. Like everything that you're complaining about, you it, it resolves immediately. <laughs> yeah. All right. I will say that I was just starting to like Jamie and like the Hound. Okay. Oh, okay. So ah, this will be a good talking point then. All right. I just I was liking those two characters, and uh, I liked the Hound a little bit less at the end of this episode, and I like Jamie a lot less at the end of this episode. Sure. Um, I I think that's okay. I think that that's super important. Mm-hmm. Sam and Gilly. Sam is just he's returning to his cowardly ways. Well, that's kind of Sam's thing. He's just now <laughs> catching up to this character. <laughs> I, I just. Oh, this uh, is great. This you, you and I are gonna have a lot to talk about. Okay, great. I, I'm okay with Davos. I think Davos may be the only. I think that's the epitome of Davos' opinion, right? I'm yeah. I'm okay with Davos. <laughs> Who's out there like, oh man? I'll tell you what. Oh, thank God, it's a Davos episode. I'll tell you what about Davos. He's like he's one of the few characters that's just good. He's he's a good guy. Yeah. Right? Sure seems like it. Sure seems like it. He's he's just an ethical man in a sea of mediocrity and terror. And but I think that he's maybe he's not as complicated as he should be because of that. I don't maybe that Well, I think that that's the beauty of it, right? Is like there's a certain element of like anytime we see somebody who seems to have a you know, maybe a heightened sense of ethics, uh take your pick on a start. Yeah. They're dispatched fairly quickly, and this guy has had every opportunity to do that. In fact, he's he's <laughs> ethicking himself right into harm's way all the time, and then yeah. he keeps getting spared by the people that are trying to kill him. <laughs> and so it's like the complication of his narrative is like he should be dead by now. Yeah, Just he by should. Virtue. He should be dead like four times over. Yeah, right? but I feel like his argument with Stannis—they've had like nine times. Yeah, you know, I'm done with the argument at this point. Um, I was really so, so. The argument is to you what any torture scene for Theon is to me. <laughs> yeah, I I could do with a couple more torture scenes <laughs> and a few less conversations about the Lord of Light. <laughs> I was really invested in this Oberyn Tywin face off, and this kind of threw a wet. I felt like this episode threw a wet blanket over it like Tywin's just gonna they're just gonna sort of make an alliance and I don't I I wasn't super happy about that Lady Olena was a bright spot I always liked Lady Olena I thought she was great but anyway I had enough other things that I didn't care about and in addition to that we see Jamie rape Cersei and that probably colored my opinion of the entire episode yeah I will say that there's an interesting element of that rape scene because it it's it's rape. Uh, I don't I don't know if I'm supposed to interpret it as okay. This was a big deal when it happened because the director Alex Graves basically came out and said I didn't think it was rape. I, I mean that's not how I feel like I directed the scene, and everyone else was like, "Uh, dude, that's rape." So yeah. so it's it, it contributed to rape culture in that way just because the director would kind of unwittingly thought that. Sure. 
yeah anyway i feel like he's trying to direct it in such a way that it it's cersei uh being like ah, maybe not in front of joffrey so uh, it's interesting because it reads less i'll have to go read this passage again in the books i haven't read it in a while but if i remember correctly cersei she says she they shouldn't do it in front of the gods like okay. she she feels a little bit weird like Dude, we're in a church. Like the gods are watching us. But I mean, the way that Graves interprets this whole thing—that's pretty jarring. That scene was pretty jarring. So yeah. Anyway. Okay. Well, no, that's fair. Um, so what do you so want to talk I, about? I, th- I feel well, like I said my piece. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll catch you next episode. I know. I. Uh, I. Here's what I think is important about the. Um, about Jamie and the Hound and how you feel about them. And this actually, this was caused a, a very lengthy conversation between Heather and I, because Heather's still very much in the, if you're Jamie and you're rooting for redemption, you're wasting your time. Right. She's already and, convinced. She's already convinced that Jamie is irredeemable. Right. And she feels the Hound as maybe a touch more sympathetic, maybe because of circumstance, but she sees them both as, either in the sociopathic realm mm-hmm. or on, on that side of the fence to the degree that it's like, look, any good they do. Uh, Cause she, she uses sort of the like, yeah, it's like they're doing good or they try to do good for the helpless, so to speak, mm-hmm. or at least what the, you know, their, their set of values are, are very select. They're very circumstantial. And or at least they have moments where they're trying to do that. Right. But I think sure. that in general, they're pretty, they're both pretty selfish people. Right, and so the idea that because because he saves Brienne from a bear, somehow we're seeing uh, a turn is she she just thinks that's folly. And I I was a little more convinced, obviously, in these episodes, but I was also a point that I, I think a bigger point that I was trying to make, and it goes to something that you had to say about. Oh, okay, Sam. Let's say, yeah. So going back to what you said about Sam, I think that there's an element. All three of them, we can we can draw a parallel. You said Sam is seems to be back to being more cowardly, and yeah, he's real brave when he's not at the wall, or at least he shows bravery, right? Or at so least when he, he, <laughs> he's brave when he can stab someone in the back. Oh well, but yeah, well, there's that, and there. But the thing is, is he did go and and take Gilly much to his own risk, right? And the same thing when you look at Jamie and Sam returning kind of to the, the confines to which they are maybe a little bit more accustomed, they fall back into their kind of standard roles, right? I mean, Jamie's, the thought being that like, if, if you just remove Jamie from King's Landing, if there was a shot at redemption, that might be the way to do it. Well, let me, let me just say, all joking aside, sort of give Sam his due. He fled with Gilly into, like, very perilous circumstance. He killed a big baddie. He defended the the woman he loves. And he came back and he basically challenged thousands of years of religious conviction. You know, all of the tradition of the Night's Watch. He, re- he reinterprets the oath. That's all very courageous. I, I feel like that character has should have turned. And I don't want to underplay the courage of that, but your point is taken. Like he's back, you know, he's back at this place where he can default to cowardice, right? Right. 
And so, yeah, so I, I think that that's important for the hound and Jamie to have that element. Uh, and you had mentioned in one of our conversations about like, well, maybe you're trading Rob for Jamie in the narrative. And, and then this complicates it, right? Because it's like, well, that ain't Rob. <laughs> you know, that ain't. Yeah. This, this isn't the guy that's gonna, gonna make everything better. And, but I think that yeah. the story has been trying to make me feel more empathy and sympathy for Jamie. Sure. Right. You've seen him in a different light. I see his killing of the Mad King. There's an alternate story on that. Brienne's entire, you know, that entire arc was supposed to humanize both of those characters. And all of a sudden he's raping his sister. Like, I, I just. Yeah, because he's he's the same guy that. <laughs> because at the core, even if it was consensual, he's totally down for incest. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean yeah. so so that's a something to to keep in mind that if it was a please and thank you moment, that's still a problem, right? <laughs> so <laughs> so <laughs> he he's very flawed. Um if if he had come back and he had resisted anything from Cersei, I would suggest okay, well now we're now we're cooking with some with a new set of ingredients, but he comes back and it's like, look, I'm not the fighter I used to be, but still I'm still horny for family. <laughs> well, you're right. I mean, Jamie's a bad dude. We- his son is dead right there. I mean, that's his son, right? <laughs> Let's not put that like, and, and he's, and there, we've never seen a moment of where he's ever felt like any responsibility or affection towards him. And I think that that's a pretty important element to all this is like, he's complicated the kingdom and he doesn't even like, care about the kid or you know what i mean like there's never been an element of like yeah that's my responsibility now maybe that's typical for fathers back then but you would think that there would be some element of like oh that's shame my, my son and, like, and cersei seems to have to remind him of that yeah he's not great he's not great but and i would I argue that and to and like I, him steve and, I, and i'll follow i'll follow heather's lead on this one which is to say yeah you probably shouldn't have started liking him <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they did a number on me, man. They did a number on me. I guess I guess that's the thing, right? Like you do have this element of keeping you keep wanting that drop of cool water that you want that refreshing like come on, who am I rooting for? Because it is. I mean, like right now we are in the midst of the who am I rooting for? Because you know, you add the the aspect of uh of Tyrion and uh being accused of this and the way things go, I mean, like Heather's already just like, well, it's been nice knowing you. He was, he was he was my favorite character, and I understand what they do to favorite characters. So so she's ready to just she's ready to call it with with Tyrion. All right, so Tyrion's in jail, right? Pod comes in with some food, and Tyrion's just looking for someone, really anyone, to help him. He's totally helpless. And then Pod kind of reveals to Tyrion. Not only can't I help you, but I actually kind of need you to run interference for me here. (laughs) And so so Tyrion is like, all right, so I'm I'm in the worst predicament of my life. And I guess I got to help you get out of the city safely. Yeah. (laughs) You get the sense that Tyrion just has nobody. Right. So how do you uh, how do you feel about Dario? Now I wish he was goofier. 
<laughs> you, did, I know, you know, it's you didn't appreciate, things. man. This is all on you. You did not appreciate 100%. the goofiness while you had it. I would have been one of those guys in the focus group to like, hey, we're gonna replace Dario. What do you think? I'm like, dude, just lose the goof. And then now I'm like, oh man, now he's just a guy. Sure, he could kill a horse real easy, but like, if you serve, how much, how much different would that scene be if the dude was goofy? Like how? Like, to me, that's even more powerful, right? I mean, like, if, if you're the guys out there, you know, pissing and talking trash, mm-hmm. and he's basically one of the French knights in the Holy Grail, and and then you uh, and then you bring out the goofball. Mm-hmm. See, that, I think of all this, so when it comes to sequences, the sequence that I think did the least for me, that sort of took me out of the moment, was the moment where it was like, shall I fight for you? No, mm-hmm. we need you to do did it. Yeah. Shall I fight for you? No, you're too blah, blah, blah. Can <laughs> I do it? No, you're too precious. And it was just like, how about me? And I'm like, all right, just send out the goofball. <laughs> This was sort of a Goldilocks and the Three Bears thing, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, was, it felt very, very much like, is this a limerick or is this a story? Like, let's just get the guy out there already. We, un- we all know who's going to do it. So, <laughs> so in, the, in the book, it's this guy, Brown Ben Plum, who's uh, oh, the, yeah, big, big, the aforementioned. Yeah, big fat guy. He's the one that ends up doing it. And it's be, I think it's because Danny thinks... If he's able to defeat, you know, the aggressor, that's better for me. But I'm not going to risk one of these other guys. And on top of that, she like she loves Dario at this point, she, or at least she's in lust with Dario at this point, and so she can't bear losing him. Okay. So anyway, they I think that they converged those characters in that scene. I thought it was pretty effective to have Danny launch the old the collars of the freed slaves oh yeah that was great that was sure. that was kind of like um you know allied forces dropping little pamphlets in nazi mm-hmm. germany like explaining you know it's it's propaganda that's what that is sure so i thought that was good i like that one in, in an otherwise dull episode i i really appreciated that one that was dull i guess i i guess i disliked this one a whole lot less <laughs> I mean, I thought it was fine, but this is definitely one of those, as I call them, like the, the plot movers, right? I mean, there's, um, I don't know that there's like a singular moment that was like, oh, wow. But like, uh, it definitely, it made you long to watch the next one because you're kind of like, all right, well, I mean, kind of moving things, moving things along here and little fingers just still just, and he, like, he, he just out little fingered himself voice wise in this particular episode too. It was all about it. In addition to that, he was telling everyone else how to talk. Yeah. He was trying to shush Dantos. He was trying to shush Sansa. Well, dude, you like have you've had a lifetime of experience sort of whisper talking. No one's gonna be as good at whispering as you, you know? Yeah. I just continue oh, to hate oh, that oh, voice. Oh, oh, yeah. Is it like what is this like seven accents in one? What is going on? <laughs> It's like it's like they recorded his voice and now they're playing it backwards. <laughs> it's like, all right, now do a voice. Okay, now do a real bad impression of that same voice you just did. <laughs> so Tywin is just like matter-of-factly like standing right over the dead body of his grandson yeah. saying, He is, he is this all idiot. <laughs> this fool was neither a good king or a wise king. And he's probably dead because of it. Now right. let me tell you how 
the birds and the bees work. <laughs> what I mean that to me that sequence was uh, was pretty fantastic on a lot of levels. Yeah, One Charles' is, dance is great. Well, just Tywin doing doing what Tywin does, which is like, look, man, I'm not here. Look, I, I'm not here to console my daughter because that would be because her her feelings would fall into the category of the whims of your children. Yeah. Right? If you follow his previous his speech. So he ain't got time for that. And he's like, look, he's doing something very valuable too, which is I'm going to secure my spot. All right, Cersei, you seem to suck at being a mother because you ruined your first kid. I I think I'm going to take over from here. Yeah, because we're all basically at war because of your son's beheading of Ned. That's right. Man, I guess if you're going to get the sex talk from Tywin... Probably isn't the worst thing. I mean, there are worse people to give the sex talk. Yeah, like Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want the sex talk from Jamie. That's what, yeah. Commission podcasts are an awesome feature here at Bald Move that allows you, the individual listener, to decide what we talk about for a single podcast. The community loves it because it often leads to fun fan-favorite films and TV shows that we've overlooked getting the coverage they deserve. And we love it because we're constantly exposed to great stuff that's not even on our radar. The way it works is simple. You go to support.baldmove.com and you click on commissions. Then you pay the flat rate for the commission and tell us what two-ish hours of content you'd like us to make podcasts on. Then we'll contact you for details, advanced feedback, and any dedications you'd like to make. Then we watch the thing, discuss the thing, turn it into a podcast, and pump it right into your ears. We get consistently great feedback on how much our commissioners love their podcast, and they make great gifts for the dedicated Bald Move fan in your life. And who knows, that dedicated fan could even be you. Treat yourself. Check out support.baldmove.com for more info. Since the dawn of time, we've been putting clothes on our back that identify us with our people, our group, our tribe. And why Bald Move might be one of the smallest, weirdest tribes out there, transcending all concepts of border, class, culture, and creed, we still have respect for the old ways. At support.baldmove.com, you can get t-shirts, hats, mugs, and more. We have something for every one of our podcasts, or just wear the four pips of the Bald Move logo with pride. Bald Move merch beats running around naked. And they make a great gift for the Bald Move fan in your life. Join our tribe. Head over to support.baldmove.com and click on merch to start shopping. You've been listening to quite a few Bald Move podcasts now, but you're not in the club? Whoo boy, you are missing out. Not only are all of our premium club podcast feeds completely ad-free, but we have lots of other great content exclusively for people in the club. There's a weekly lunch with Jim and Aaron where we chat with fans about anything and everything from TV and films, food, fun, life advice, and more. But there's also Off the Clock, our premium podcast where we talk about all the shows we don't have time for on our public feeds. Plus, you get access to our full spoiler-filled first-round movie reviews of our newly released films. Don't forget Instant Take and Talk Podcast, where we give our hot takes and discuss television shows with our fans live and immediately after the episode airs. With mega shows like House of the Dragon coming this summer, we're going to have lots to talk about. 
not to mention access to our fun and friendly community of club members with exclusive Discord channels and a dedicated forum. It's one of the best places on the internet to hang out and chat about pop culture. Bottom line, you're helping two regular type guys in the Midwest make the content you like to listen to, which some would say is rewarding to itself. Help keep the lights on and the bits flowing at Bald Move. And get some awesome content for yourself. Head to support.baldmove.com to join the club today. For this week's Bird's Eye View, I'll include a short conversation I had with a fellow fan. He lives in Belgium. His name is Yannick. We struck up a conversation by way of email, and he mentioned something in his email that got me thinking, and I thought, you know what? Maybe I'll include a little bit of this conversation for a Bird's Eye View. So here's my conversation with Yannick. I wasn't expecting to get an answer so quickly, So, and I've also been <laughs> listening to the podcast for years, so sure. I was like, oh, it's... Well, I'll tell you what, uh, Yannick, I will tell you that... And I'm doing, is, is that right, Yannick? Is that, am I saying that? Yannick right? is good. Yeah. He's good. I, when I got your email, I thought, you know, this is actually, this has got me thinking. And mm. I wonder if there would be some benefit to hashing out a couple of these ideas voice to voice. Yeah. So I originally read Game of Thrones for the first time after season two released, and I could not wait anymore. So yeah, I thought, yeah. let's read the books. Uh, I was about 20 at the time. Uh-huh. And I think I was just looking at the books with a very different mindset. Uh, uh-huh. okay. Maybe a bit more classic masculinity, let's say, that the cool characters are Jon Snow, Tyrion, you know, uh-huh. Tyrion because he's smart and witty or a fighting badass. And maybe, I mean, I, I thought about this later on that I gave characters like Caitlyn, Sansa, uh-huh. maybe even Davos less of a chance because I felt like they're not cool on the surface. They're just... Why are they not giving Rob a POV chapter? Why is it Caitlin? Yeah, sure, um, sure. Then now that uh, eight years later, uh, I've also married in the time. And I've talked to my wife a lot about Game of Thrones and about these characters. And she actually asked me, uh, how come you? How come these aren't your favorite characters? Have you ever uh-huh. thought about Caitlin? Or... <laughs> yeah. And then... I was like, mm, I'll give it a chance. And uh-huh. I was also much more open to the world because I had also been watching a lot of Game of Thrones, reading a lot of theories. Yeah, yeah. And then I really saw how good, especially the Caitlin chapters were and how interesting. Uh-huh. Uh, I understood how the world was working, like how she manipulates the phrase or how she, for instance, that she knows how to talk to them to have a good wedding relationships. Uh-huh. It's so funny to have this mindset switch that they turn into my more favorite characters. (laughs) Well, I have a question about this, and I'm glad you brought the sort of the masculinity thing into it, because that's where I wanted to go with it. Mm -hmm. So you said that you first read these books when you were around 20. Yeah. And it's almost a decade later, right? Almost a decade later, yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. almost a decade later, and you're older and you're wiser. (laughs) Hopefully, yeah. And... I think so here's my question and I and I'm interested in it because I've explored this in my own life as well and I wonder if there is some sort of thing about your relationship to your own masculinity that hindered you from liking these female characters early on mm-hmm. and so now that you can look back and reflect on that yeah, I don't want to say I don't want to say misogyny, but I just want to ask: like, is is there something there 
that's worth critiquing? I think that it's mainly, let's say, with role models. And I think that there's a lot of male role models out there. And I think me as a teenager, it was never like, oh, there could also be a female role model uh, to look up to. Mm -hmm. It's just a small mindset change. Like, oh, wouldn't it be interesting to have a woman as a role model than a man for a change? Isn't it isn't it odd that it takes so long to learn these lessons? It seems <laughs> yeah. so obvious in retrospect, right? Yeah, yeah, very very sure. And <laughs> I mean it also took me to get married because I it's also because of the the person sure. I married because she's uh, let's say she's more vocal in these things that uh-huh. I started to think about it more. At least had to. <laughs> I'm glad we're talking about this. I because I felt like I didn't like Sansa at all. Mhm. And I think in retrospect, I can appreciate her in a different way. Mm-hmm. But I felt like, for me, she was just so horrible to, to Arya. Definitely, yeah. That I didn't really sort of give credit to her her own sort of survival techniques. Yeah. So you said that you didn't like Sansa early on, but now you're appreciating her differently now. Yeah, I think I'm seeing a different kind of braveness. You know, I think Arya really has this braveness. Hey, I'm going to go out and I'm going to stab you. While yeah. Sansa needs to learn how to survive in her own way. Mm-hmm. So she's got uh-huh. she's got to make use of different tools that she has. I feel like, and this is sort of a self-critique here, you know, me saying that I love Arya and then I, I hated Sansa early on. I think for me, I think I might have used that as a shield to say, no, I don't like, I don't dislike Sansa because of her gender. Because, of course, I love Arya. Mm-hmm. But then, the, then there's that additional thing of like, well, do I love Arya because she presents with more masculine characteristics than Sansa does? Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, that made her more interesting. And then, of course, then the question is, well, why do I find those characteristics more interesting? Yeah, the rabbit hole goes deeper. So, exactly. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Anyway, I thought, hey, here's someone that would be interested in talking that through with me. So I appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. My thanks to Yannick for that conversation. Just one final note. I wonder if we might be served by reconsidering what we would consider a male characteristic or a female characteristic. So a bit of self-critique of the self-critique here. You never know what's going to happen when you email me at book at baldmove.com. And that is all for this week.